Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the FemiPod for episode number 70. As always, I am here with Est, and this week we have a very special guest to chat all about running products. Straight off the plane from Boston Marathon, Molly Pollock is a marathon runner and a product expert at Nike. Her title is an Eakin. More on that soon. Molly has spent the last seven years at Nike learning all things running technical products and the importance of finding the right fit. Knowing we all can agree that running is hard, we are all about making it easier to make it more enjoyable. And as a woman, finding the right footwear and sports bra are so important to get the most out of our sport. So Molly is here to drop some truth bombs on how important these tools are. Molly, welcome to the show. Firstly, how are you and how was the Boston Marathon? Not only did you run it, you also got engaged at the finish line. Thank you, Lids and Est. It's so great to be here. You know how much of a fan I am of both of you and the work that you do. So an absolute pleasure to be here chatting to you today. I'm really good. I'm two days fresh back in Australia after spending some time over in the US. Uh, The reason for the trip was to, I guess, primarily run the Boston Marathon, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, It's the third time I've done it, and I think it just gets better and better every time that city knows how to celebrate running like nowhere else in the world. So an absolute pleasure to have had the opportunity to do that again. And I did get engaged at the finish line. So it has been a big and very exciting couple of weeks. Nice to have some time over there after the marathon just with Chris and myself before we came back into what has been a pretty chaotic welcome back into the country from family and friends. But very exciting. Have had a great couple of weeks. It was an incredible trip. Oh, so exciting. What a combo, running a marathon and getting engaged. I feel like, yeah, that's a very exciting trip we've been on. Uh, can you tell us about yourself and how you got into sport and especially running? Absolutely. Yeah, I've always been into sport from a really young age. I think we're so lucky in the country that we've grown up in that sport really is like part of our DNA. And as a child, I played many sports, you know, was really active, did, did a bit of everything and Ran through primary school, you know, nothing serious, but, you know, got involved in cross country, got involved in track, and as I said, was involved in many sports. Tennis actually was my real first love when it came to sport and something that I, I guess, pursued seriously throughout primary school and high school. And it got to the point where I was doing so much of that, that everything else, all the other sports that I had done as a child had to get pushed to the side to really focus on on tennis, which took me to some incredible places around the world. But throughout that time, funnily enough, I actually really fell out of love with running. I've been a big listener of the podcast and, you know, spent a lot of time talking to female athletes. And I love my time in tennis, but definitely had some moments along that journey where some of the experiences that I had really aligned to what others do. And and for me, you know, running was something that was used as a punishment to try and make sure that we were fitting within skin folds or hitting certain benchmarks. So throughout that time, whilst I was, you know, not really focused on running and focused on another sport, um, I actually stopped running altogether and probably never would have thought that I would enjoy it or, or pick it up again. And then when my time with tennis came to an end, when I was about 15 or 16, you know, it had been something that was a serious pursuit. You know, the goal was always to try and make it professionally and spend a lot of time 
on the court and a lot of time engaged in, you know, routine kind of physical activity and training that I decided that I wanted to kind of maintain that somehow. And, and running really just started off as something that I started to pick up again with my dad. My dad was always a runner. He would always get out pretty much every day. So I saw him doing that from a young age. And I just wanted to, I guess, take the parts of sport and exercise and movement that I had really loved, but then leave behind all that kind of seriousness and, and pressure that comes from trying to chase it at the highest level. So got back into it kind of throughout my later high school years. And, and I think the funny thing is it's, you know, led me to so many amazing connections and friendships. And it's it's funny to look back on where I am now and how much running I've done over the years. And I think some of the coaches that I worked with when I was playing tennis would probably just be astounded at the fact that I've actually taken it and, and do it as much as I do because I was pretty open about how much I stopped enjoying it for a while there. But that's really how I got back into it. And you know, I'm obsessed with it now. I completely identify as being a runner whilst it's absolutely nothing serious for me. I still just love getting out there every day with my friends and traveling the world. And now chasing down marathons is that fun physical pursuit. So amazing. It is so funny when you think about how much running was used as a punishment when we were kids. Like if you misbehave in school or in class, they'd send you out to run a lap. And now we do it every day by choice. And it's something that we like love so much but I think it is the narrative that you tell yourself about like that particular form of movement and and now I think we're all on the same page that running is so incredible for your mind and what it can do for your mental health as well as all other facets of health I think is so amazing and and now we just kind of lean into running more and more as much as we can um, to kind of benefit ourselves and not think about it as just punishment that we used to what about your journey with Nike? Can we dive into that? What led you to starting to work at Nike? And and tell us a little bit about your role as an Econ. Yes, yeah, so my journey with Nike probably really dates back to the days where I did play tennis. And the reason for that is I was in what was called the National Academy, which was the kind of program, the training program that we were in based out of different cities across Australia. And at the time, they actually had a partnership in place with Nike where athletes that were part of this program would seasonally get a whole bunch of Nike kit and shoes and outfits to wear. I wasn't a Nike sponsored athlete by any means, but the program had that kind of affiliation. So I always think back to Nike as being a brand that was really alongside me throughout my athletic endeavors on the tennis court. And I think subconsciously when I stopped playing, I took that into my running world as well. And have always really been scientifically inclined. So product has always been something that's really interested me. And I was at uni studying exercise and sports science. And I think just this blend of, you know, I don't think it was conscious. I think it was very subconscious. Having been there throughout my journey, learning a lot about products through what we were doing with the biomechanics at uni, and then really just being inspired by what the brand represents and the marketing magic that, you know, so many people I think are inspired by when it comes to Nike. And I started working at a retail store when I was going through uni. So I would have been in my late teens, early 20s, uh, back in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, just started out on the shop floor. And it's crazy because I always thought that that was like a dream kind of job to have while I was going through uni. And, but, you know, ultimately that that would come to an end at some point and I would continue on the journey of whatever I was studying at the time, which was sports science. As I started to get closer towards the end of my degree, I just really felt this sense of like wanting to follow this Nike dream a little bit more. I absolutely loved my time with the brand and really felt so aligned to 
what they represented and so much of what we were exposed to within the retail space, as well as making so many, you know, incredible friends in that store. That I kind of had that real moment that I think a lot of people go through in their early 20s where you're on this path that you think is what you have set out to do and what people are almost expecting you to do, but really feeling like this tug towards something else. It's funny, actually, you know, if anyone who's ever read Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, he actually talks about having a very similar moment in his early 20s where he was actually, you know, pursuing a different career, but then really wanted to chase down this dream of like starting a company which made athletic shoes. And I've always just felt like that resonated so much with me because it's exactly what I was feeling. And then I thought, you know, I really want to see where this goes, but it probably won't go anywhere at all. Nike out in Australia is nowhere near as big as it is across the rest of the world in terms of corporate, you know, roles, but kind of chased the dream a little bit and I guess was like, I'll just give it a go. And if I give it a go and nothing ever happens from it, then at least I can look back and say that I tried. And my dream role at that time was being an Econ. An Econ stands for Nike backwards. And the myth behind the role is that, you know, Econs are meant to know the product and the brand backwards to front. So, you know, Nike is a huge multinational brand and there's so many parts to it now that we absolutely don't know everything about the brand backwards to front. But a really cool job that I think, again, blended together so many of my passions talking about product and the science behind them and like their intention and how they're going to help athletes. So was exposed to the Econ at Nike at the time who would work with us at the retail space and, you know, always looked up to, his name was Sam and always looked up to him and really wanted to be in that role. And I guess established a bit of a relationship with him and the team and, you know, put some feelers out there and really kind of worked towards that. And and here we are today. So it always has been one of those moments where I think it's a real realisation if you have a dream and like you chase it and work hard enough, like it absolutely can eventuate. And that's really what landed me here, not where I thought I was going to be, but definitely don't see myself hopefully taking it any other way in the near future. That's so cool. Such a cool journey to get where you are now. Congrats to you for putting in all that hard work and, you know, achieving what you wanted to and working with Nike, you know, seven years later now. It's so exciting. I also always thought that Econ is really smart. I was like, for so long, didn't know what Econ meant. And I was like, such a random name. And then when I found out what it stood for, I was like, that's actually very, very cool and a clever way to, I guess, you know, know Nike back, back to front, like you said. It's cool. There's a funny story about Ekins where uh, it was always seen as a bit of a competitive advantage in the early days of Nike, and a competitor brand actually tried to copy the Ekin program, and they called them Ekins, and they didn't realise that it stood for Nike backwards. <laughs> oh no, that's so so embarrassing for them. <laughs> Terrible choice. Cool. Well, let's dive into a little bit more about the product side, which you're so passionate about, and maybe we can start with sports bras. I think both Liz and I were shocked with what we learned recently from both you and our Femi Physio Grace and, and how important sports bras are. And so we both, you know, paid a lot more attention to what sports bra we're wearing while we're training and why it's so important. Can you talk us through why having a good sports bra is so important? One of my absolute favorite topics to talk about and definitely one of the most like underspoken about topics that are out there for female athletes or really anyone with breasts who's playing sport. Sports bras are so, so important for anyone who has breasts who's playing sport. The reason for this is that when an athlete is moving, the breasts undergo so much movement as a result of the impact that gravity has on them. 
And what happens if they're not properly supported is that it can actually cause a lot of damage to the skin and the tissues and the muscles in the back and the shoulders. It's really, really extensive, the actual damage that can occur. The problem with sports bras in particular and like the lack of education around them is that it's always been seen as something that's an embarrassing topic or taboo and there's been no education. Like no one has gone through primary school or high school having conversations about the importance of a sports bra. You know, I grew up playing tennis and having a kind of serious pursuit of sport and I know that you both have as well and no one once thought to mention that it was really crucial that we had this sports bra not just to protect ourselves and really elevate our experience of sport by reducing pain, but also to help with our performance. So we really look at it from two sides. There's that protection element, and we talk about sports bras as being a key enabler to keeping females in sport. But then for those who are chasing down performance goals, sports bras are equally important in this realm as well, because basically all that excessive movement that's happening happening across the top of the body and the torso is taking away from the movements that are going to allow people to be more efficient in their chosen sport. So when we start to break it down and think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense and it's really logical. And a sports bra is the only thing that really plays this role to protect and support the breast because unfortunately the breasts don't have a lot of intrinsic elements that can actually support themselves. I always say that the female body is so incredible at adapting and supporting itself in so many ways. But unfortunately, the breasts are a little bit of a contradiction to this rule. They're just not really built to be able to do that. And as we get older, the elasticity of the skin starts to degrade over time. So it definitely is one of those conversations as well that what support they might be able to provide when someone's a little bit younger does start to become less and less as a female gets older. But yeah, it's so important. It really is like a technical piece of apparel We talk about footwear a lot for female athletes. It needs to be a focus on the sports bra and the footwear. And we have a saying where it's like no sports bra, no sport, because it really is as simple as that. But just unfortunately one that's not spoken about nearly enough and there's a real lack of education in this area. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's so interesting. And I'm so glad that we're able to bring you on the podcast to spread this education because so many people just like it. They really just don't think about it. And they, I mean, until recently, we've been doing the learning with yourself and Grace. Have I actually like thought consciously about what sports bra I'm wearing when I pull it on in the morning and go out for a run? And you mentioned our breast tissue and the support we have changes over our life. But what sort of age should young girls be thinking about wearing a proper sports bra when they're doing sport? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess the the complex answer to that is that it can vary. The reason for that is that the onset of puberty can vary so greatly amongst individuals. But as a rough indicator, anywhere from the time, you know, someone turns eight to when they're about 13 is really like the average age for the the onset of puberty. And that's when breast development often starts to occur. So once these changes do start to occur and the tissue and the volume of the breast starts to grow, that's when it's really crucial that we are starting to think about having these conversations of wearing a sports bra. And Unfortunately, sports bras have been one of these kind of apparel items that have been sexualized over the past, you know, right? It's it's ridiculous because they're playing like a protective role, but it can mean that sometimes parents are a little bit reluctant to acknowledge that it might be time that their young female athletes start to wear sports bras because they can kind of have this idea of it being a sexual piece of apparel, which is absolutely, you know, not the case at all and, and something we need to really work to 
to break down, but the the age is a lot younger than what people often think, anyway from eight. So this education really is crucial for those in primary school when you think about it like that. And another kind of stat that we talk about a lot to highlight the significance of it at this young age is there was a study done on UK young teen girls, so 12-year-olds, and 50% of them reported breast pain as a reason why they didn't want to engage in sport anymore. And you know, participation rates really align to this narrative as well, because at those younger ages, the rates of participation for males and females are, are really quite similar. But then when you start to move through into the teenage years, there's this huge drop off rate of young girls in sport. And we often have thrown out the line, well, girls are just not interested in sport like boys are. But it's absolutely not true. Why are the rates the same when they're children? And then why does this align to when a female body starts to change so much? And it's not just breast, it's menstrual cycle. But these are really valid reasons why female athletes, young girls, adolescents are dropping out of sport. And it's actually reported as being one of the top five barriers to participation. So absolutely crucial that we're having these conversations at a young age because the need for a sports bra can start anywhere from the age of eight. And that's the average. So it might even start younger for some. That's insane. Yeah, I remember when I was young, I felt really awkward about bringing it up. I feel like we need to be more empowered as young women to know what these changes are and like when we should be asking for help from our parents to like go and buy, you know, a sports bra or, or who to talk to to get fitted. The other day I was going for a run myself and I saw a dad and a young girl running together and she clearly didn't have a bra on under her top and her breasts were bouncing a lot. And I was like, because oh, I'd heard everything from you. And I nearly stopped her on the street and said something, but I didn't want to make her feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. But I was like, she, you know, she clearly needed one for her sport and wasn't in one. So maybe I should have had that conversation, but she probably would have thought I was a bit of a freak on the street, stopping her while she was running and saying that. Yeah, and it's complex, right, because it is a sensitive topic and it is something that people at this point are going to be embarrassed about because it's got this kind of taboo nature behind it. But I think that's just where we really need to commit to driving this education from a young age because that's the only way that we're going to break down the stigma around it and really reduce, I guess, the damage that's happening for these young female athletes because it's it's extensive. Like in an hour of jogging, the breast bounces 10,000 times and it's a huge, huge amount of damage that can be occurring, not just to the breast, but her body in general. So yeah, it's always my call to action. Um, it's definitely complex and it's not easy, but I think just the more we can commit to talking about it and raising awareness about it, like hopefully this really improves things for females and future generations. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I should have stopped and spoken to her and the reasons why I think, you know, I'm someone that knows and lives in this space and I should have probably spoken up and that's the thing just breaking it down right and taking away that shame is so important but what makes a good sports bra there's so many options out there what what makes one better than the other there's a lot of things that go into the design of sports bras that I think are really important to acknowledge as like key constructional elements I think the actual material and the integrity and the elasticity of it is really crucial it actually goes through a lot of force, that sports bra, like the material elasticity, the way that it's like absorbing the force, preventing the movement and then bouncing back into place. Like it's a lot that's going through that. And you need that really high quality material, high quality construction. A lot of research goes into sports bras because they are this technical piece of apparel. The other key one that's really crucial to call out from a more general sense is that they have to have some kind of sweat wicking technology in them. 
every brand has a different technology for Nike. It's dry fit, but it's really crucial because this is a really high heat area of the female body. And 40% of sweat is actually absorbed by the sports bra alone. That just indicates like how much heat is being generated through there. And if you don't have a material that's able to effectively absorb and wick and kind of evaporate that sweat or any technology in there that can do that, what's going to happen is she's going to retain a lot of moisture. It's going to cause chafing. It's going to be heavy. It's going to actually prevent her ability to cool herself as well. So that's why it's really important that the sports bra technology is something that's focused on and that it has to be a good quality one that's designed for sport. It's one of the reasons why, you know, some of the ones from brands that don't invest as much into research and design are just not going to be able to provide her what she needs in that sense. 40% is like a huge number. I think when we look at the shorts and singlet combined, it's less than 30%. So nothing in her body is absorbing as much sweat as that sports bra is. So they're kind of two really crucial things to think about as well as the actual design and how that all comes to life. But I think what is also really important to call out is that female bodies have such a high level of individual variance and the needs from one female to another are going to be so unique and so different. And that's based off, you know, her body and her structure and her breast size, but also how she moves, her biomechanics, what sport she's playing, the level of impact and how all of that comes together as one. So individual product design is really important to make sure that it's being like matched up to the needs of that female athlete to make sure that, you know, not only does it have this high level material construction and sweat wicking technology, but that it's actually the right one for her as well, because it's not a one size fits all approach. And what works for you and lids might be completely different for what works for me for the exact same movement pattern. So it is also a really individual complex decision as well. Yeah, wow, there's so much to take into account when you're trying to find the right sports bra. I can definitely speak from experience about the sweat. I feel like no matter what temperature I take my sports bra off at the end and I could wring it out, um, definitely absorbs a lot up there. But what is your favorite sports bra to run in? Do you have a favorite? My favorite sports bra right now is the swoosh fly knit bra. I also really like the swoosh franchise in general. And for those who are not super across Nike products specifically, the swoosh is like that classic crop top looking racer back silhouette that we would have all seen and probably associate with the sports bra. I think that this one is amazing. It actually comes in different levels of support as well. And I think when we're thinking about, you know, what makes a good sports bra, a high level of support is something that's really important as well, especially when we're playing sport and moving around. Like you just don't want something that's providing that minimal level of support whilst people do. Um, so, yeah, that's my favourite. Well, they're my two favourites. Um, that kind of franchise, I guess, is something that's really iconic and one that I've always loved. But, yeah, you can never have too much support. Plenty of options out there as well. Yeah, I love the Flynet Bra too. It's definitely my fave at the moment. I know there are lots of options though. There are plenty of options across multiple different brands. And I feel like a lot of people tend to try to find bras that look pretty or certain colors. How can we actually make a decision on finding the right bra for us? Like how do we get fitted and how do we find the right bra depending on what intensity level of sport we're playing? Yeah, another another great question and another area that I think we need so much education in. And also just to acknowledge that, you know, when it comes to product design and research into this area, we are still fairly new. Like there's 
only a couple of major institutions worldwide that currently study breast biomechanics. You know, we are investing in sports bra research and design so much and there's such a heavy focus on that and there's going to be some incredible products that come from it. But, you know, historically, we haven't really had the options. They're not speaking on behalf of any particular brand, but just across the industry because we haven't done the research, which is so consistent with female athletes in general across the board. But when it comes to choosing a sports bra and choosing the one that fits correctly and the one that's right for the athlete, unfortunately, it just can't be a decision about aesthetically what you like the look of because that's not going to necessarily meet the demands of what the impact protection needs are for that athlete. You know, it's all well and good to look nice, but there's no point looking great if it's impacting the integrity of your body and also your performance. So there's a couple of things to consider. I think First of all, it is this blend of what's the sport you're doing and what's the impact level of that sport. If we think about running, running is a really high impact sport. So you are going to need a sports bra that's providing that high level of support or is at least designed for that because product is designed really specifically to suit a certain impact level. So that's important to look at first of all. Then it's also what is your cup size and what is your back size and what are your measurements? Because that will give you an idea of what level of support you might need. For example, we often say that a D cup, which is the average cup size in Australia, needs to be in a high level of support sports bra, no matter what sport they're doing, even if it is more of a medium impact sport. So that's important. And then the third part is once you've matched up the product and what its intent is, what level of impact you need for your sport what size you are, is how they all come together. So how that bra that you've selected actually fits your body. With female athletes, we don't really have this cookie cutter approach where we can say, this is your size, this is your sport, this is the bra you need. And the reason for that is because everybody is so different. You can have the same breast measurements, but have different volumes of tissue within those breasts and they're going to move differently. So a good place to start is always those things that I spoke about just before. But then we always say you have to absolutely test that bra on yourself and make sure that it fits you correctly. But then once you've done that, make sure that once it's fitting and once you've like married up all these things, is it actually providing you the support you need when you start to do the movements of that sport? So it's complex because unfortunately, there's not a one size fits all when it comes to actually fitting and recommending sports bras. But the easiest answer to it is, is like, everyone needs to go through this process and everyone needs to check the fit on them and just make sure that it's working for them. So if we do that and we have a really individualized approach to it, we can make sure that 80% of women who are currently in the wrong size or wrong level of support can actually be fitted correctly. And there's a couple of areas to look at when you are fitting a sports bra. The chest band is really important. You need to make sure that it's not too loose or not too tight. Then you need to also look at the shoulder straps. That's another area that we can often have being too loose or too tight. And then the cups is the third area that often causes problems and athletes need to not be falling out of it, but they also need to not have any dimples in the material, which would suggest they're not filling it out enough. So pretty simple in the actual checking the fit. But as we've said earlier, the problem is that no one thinks to do it or is too embarrassed to actually ask about it because they just don't know how important it is. So true. Yeah, I definitely didn't know how important it was until recently, but I just know that I have like a rotation of sports bras where certain times of my menstrual cycle, my breasts hurt so much more. And I like choose the ones that I know are like hold me down more. And then the rest of the time, it's like a little bit more chilled out. But yeah, it's just so important to be properly fitted 
and find out what you should be wearing. But yeah, the menstrual cycle, I'm sure, has a lot a lot to do with it as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love that you brought that up because hormones have such an impact on so many different parts of our body and the breasts are actually made up of a really high percentage of fat mass. What that actually means is that fat mass is like really reactive to changes in hormones, which can happen not only across a female's life, but also month to month. So we always say to our athletes that you may very well need a different sports bra at different times of the month because of things like breast volume or breast tenderness, or it's just going to hurt you if you're moving that little bit more. So absolutely, that can be the case. And I love that you brought that up because people often feel silly when they say that, but it is absolutely a valid point. Yeah. And I've like at times not put the right one on and I'll run down the street and like the first 200 meters, I'm like actually holding my breasts. And I'm like, damn it, <laughs> this is not the right sports bra for today. I should probably throw those ones out, I think, after this conversation. Um, but now we know how important it is to fit our sports bra correctly. And we are hopefully everyone listening knows how important it is to fit the right shoe as well. Uh, we can move into footwear. What is your go-to running shoe? A conversation that I love almost as much as sports bras. Uh, my go-to pair of shoes is the Pegasus. If I had to choose one shoe forever for all of my running, no matter what it is, that is exactly what it would be. And I'm pretty sure that Liz has the same view as me here. I do like to change my footwear based on what kind of run I'm doing. So I do have, I guess, many go-tos for, for many different kinds of runs. Uh, but I won't go into, you know, every single choice of footwear for every single kind of run. If I had to choose one forever, it is absolutely the Peggy, an absolute icon in the Nike world. Yes, I would have to 100% vouch for that as well. I say that I'm peg obsessed. I've been running in pegs for maybe 12 or so years now. So agreeing with you, like they are the best go-to all-round shoe that kind of can fit into whatever run you, you are doing and I'm super excited about the new pegs the peg 40 is about to launch as well can you talk us through what actually makes a good running shoe again there are so many running shoes on the market and I think a lot of people wonder like what they should be looking at or what they should be feeling when they put on a particular shoe like how do they pick the right shoe that's right for them Totally. And and running shoes are also so important when it comes to, you know, runners. It's really the only thing that's absorbing any of that impact that goes through the body when you run. And then the impact forces are huge. It's like three to five times your body weight when you run. So getting a good pair of running shoes and ones that work for you is definitely one of the most important pieces of the puzzle for any runner. When we think holistically about, you know, some really broad things that make running shoes, you know, good, it's you want to have a look at the cushioning. You need to have flexibility where you need it. They need to be designed in a way that there's also stiffness where you need it, like traction, breathability. There's so many kind of general design characteristics. But I always say that the most important things to focus on, if you're buying from, you know, a reputable source, your local running store, a Nike store, most places that are going to sell running shoes in Australia are going to stock, you know, high-end products and ones that are really kind of validated by science. And the most important thing when you're looking for running shoes is to make sure that that actual shoe is designed for what you're planning to do with it. Product design is so specific, so much more specific than most people would even think to think about. But the research and the testing and the design that goes into them is takes years. Like the process is so extensive and there's so, so much that goes into it that we really need to understand like what the intent of that product is. 
even, you know, we know it's a running shoe, but like what kind of running, what surface, you know, is it designed for fast running, for slow running? Because all of that stuff matters and we need to make sure that we're matching up what that product is designed for to what we're actually using it for to get the best experience out of that shoe. So that's the first thing, making sure that we're choosing the right product for how we intend to use it. And then the second part of that is making sure that it works for you. Again, feet are so individual and everyone moves so differently. Biomechanics, the way that we absorb and handle load and how that shoe actually fits your foot can be so different from one person to another. So again, like sports bras, it really needs to be looked at through this individualized approach. And once we've identified and matched up what we're using it for to what it's designed for, actually trying it on and making sure that it works with your foot. The best things to focus on are, you know, comfort. Does it feel good on your foot? It sounds really simple in this world where we have so many ways that we try and prescribe footwear. But when you strip it down to it, comfort actually makes a lot of sense because what it means is that your foot is interacting with the surface of that shoe in the right way. So forget motion capture, you know, forget foot types, forget high arch, I need this. Honestly, match it up to what you need and then make sure that it feels good when it's on your foot, when you're actually running in it, when you're standing in the store, it should feel comfortable. And a lot of research is coming out to suggest that that's one of the best indicators to then identify if that shoe is right for you. And then the third part is making sure that the shoe actually fits your foot as well, because that's really important. You can have the best shoe in the world, but if you haven't fitted it to your foot correctly, it's not going to do what it needs to for you. So couple of kind of general things at the start there, but really I think those last three that we focused on are what we always talk about as being the most important. Controversial maybe, but should people be going into a store and getting on a treadmill and getting a video taken of them running and then provided them a shoe? Very controversial and a, a very sensitive topic and one that, you know, comes up quite a lot. I think what I want to say here is it can depend on who is prescribing that shoe and who is doing the video analysis of it. If you are taking a video on an iPad and putting it into some generic product, you know, by someone who works at the local running store but doesn't have an extensive history in biomechanical analysis, then I would say there's a fairly good chance that what that is going to suggest for you is really not backed by research or science. The other one that is really important that I have to touch on is that people have this misconception that they need to have a shoe that stops pronation and provides them with a really high level of arch support. And it's not, you know, it's not, it's fair that people have these assumptions because the industry has spoken about this for such a long time, but really we're moving away from that and saying that you actually want to just let your foot within reason moves how it wants, how it wants to move. We don't want to stop pronation too much. Pronation is like, this natural shock absorber. Imagine if you jumped off a table and didn't bend your knees and you just landed straight-legged. That is what would ha- it would feel like if you ran and didn't have pronation. So we don't want to focus on that. We don't want to try and stop it. We don't want to focus on having excessive arch control unless you've been told by someone who's highly qualified in this area that that's what you need. We just really want to focus on making sure that the shoe is right for what you're doing in it and that it actually fits your foot and that it's comfortable. So I don't know if I answered your question there, Liz. It might be a bit of a long-winded way of saying, for the most part, I'm uh, not a big fan of treadmill biomechanical analysis when they're done in a running store. I love it. So useful. So many awesome tips. I I laughed a little bit to myself when you were talking about like finding the actual right shoe and that being the first step, like as in what that shoe's designed for. And I just remember seeing so many people at the gym when I used to work at Les Mills and Alpha Flies 
just at the gym doing training and I'm like what are you doing those are like really expensive high-end you know just for for racing shoes and they're wearing them to the gym yeah and like that's not good for the individual who's using them for the gym work and it's also not good for the actual lifespan of the product and we so often see people that will come back and say this shoe is rubbish and you know it lasted for you know, 10 weeks and it's already got holes in it. And it's like, well, what were you doing in it? And it's like, well, I was skateboarding in it. And it's like, well, it's not designed for skateboarding. It's not designed to handle those external forces on the top of the shoe. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, it's not their fault because they don't know. But my advice to all runners is educating yourself on footwear and your running shoes is actually one of the best things that you can do to make sure that you're using those running shoes as like a tool in your arsenal to aid you on your running journey. Because Footwear has a really big, really big impact on like how we distribute force and, and load and how much we're going to enjoy that workout or whatever we're doing. So it is absolutely, you know, not indulgent to spend the time understanding how they work and what they're going to do for you because they have a huge impact. And it's really like, as I said, the only thing that's there protecting you from the forces that are going through the ground. So definitely, definitely worth taking the time to learn about them. So true. Are there any differences between men's and women's running shoes? And if so, what what are the differences? Sometimes there are. And I think as we move forward and really invest in women-specific design, we are increasingly going to see footwear that's designed more specifically for women and their feet as compared to men. The, the reason for this is that, you know, female feet are not just scaled down smaller versions of male feet but they actually do differ in a number of kind of characteristics in the shape of the foot, particularly at like the arch and along the lateral side of the foot, you know, around the ball of the toes as well. So these differences really need to be taken into account if we are going to make sure we're providing the best product solutions for females as compared to males. So sometimes in certain models, and at Nike we do this quite often, we use female lasts, which means that the last is what the shoe is actually built off. So if you imagine that while the shoe is being made, there's like almost a fake foot kind of shape that's shoe is then built around it. So we have female specific lasts that represent those different characteristics and shapes of a female foot compared to males. Not every single shoe model has that right now, but I think as we move to the future, we're going to see it more and more. So sometimes, yes, there are. Where we've also seen differences are if we think about one of our favourite shoes, the Pegasus that we spoke about earlier, there's actually different cushioning systems within those two different shoes for a male versus a female. So we actually have what we call Zoom Air units inside them and we pressurise those differently in some models for females as compared to males. So in the 40, we haven't, but in prior versions we have. And the reason for that is because Females often report preferring uh, a softer feel underfoot compared to males. Sometimes for them, cushioning and comfort is like seen as being a higher priority than their male counterparts. So throughout the wear testing process and product design, the teams are always kind of looking for these little nuances in what males versus females are reporting. And if it's deemed to be enough to kind of create different models, they absolutely will. So yeah, there can be differences. And we definitely should be chatting to whoever's serving us the footwear in that moment to make sure that we are taking these into account because, yeah, different shaped foot, different characteristics. It's obviously going to be optimal to have the one that's designed most for your foot to make sure we're not moving around in it and really utilising that as the tool, you know, to help us perform as well as we can. Yeah, super interesting. 
What about, I know this is a super privileged question, but should runners have multiple pairs of running shoes? I know for you and I and Est, we bounce between different shoes. Can you talk us through the benefits of having different shoes for different purposes and and how we can get away with potentially only having one shoe if that's what's accessible to us? For sure. And I think the the crux of that question, you know, really kind of lies in we want to make sure that we're trying to provide solutions to people, no matter what kind of disposable income they have to spend on their running shoes. But if we look at it from a, you know, a point of view where someone does have the ability to purchase multiple pairs of shoes firstly, then absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think if you look at it from a performance lens, first and foremost, for those who are quite committed to their running and, and doing different kinds of runs. As I've mentioned a few times, product is designed really specifically for not only, you know, running, but fast running, racing, trail running, you know, tempo running, like fast training running or or slow jogging. So if you can best match the intention of that product to what you're actually using it for, you're going to get the best experience out of it. And they all have these subtle design differences that really elevate the experience if you do match it up. So there's that performance side of things, you know, we don't want to be wearing racing shoes every day for training because there's things in that racing shoe that might help you run faster, but it's not optimal to have under your feet every day for the bulk of your mileage. The other side of it as well, besides that kind of performance and experience conversation, is that when we look at running shoes and how they distribute force amongst our feet and bodies, those different design characteristics of these different shoes are going to send that force to different parts of the foot, the lower body. We can't alleviate force, right? So we spoke about three to five times your body weight going through when you run. That's not going to go anywhere. Like your body has to absorb it somewhere. It is a myth that we can like completely mitigate that. What happens is depending on the running shoe and how your body and foot works with that, it's just going to get sent into different places. So if we are wearing the same pair of shoes every single day and running is a linear, repetitive sport, then that load and force is going to be going to the same muscles every single day. The risk of that is that we overload that same part of the body by doing that every single day, where even just subtly changing the shoes that you wear can send that force and distribute the load to different parts. And that could be the difference between getting some kind of overuse injury or being okay, because we know that it can be really subtle overloads that can cause huge issues. So that's another part of the conversation. And it's another reason why I really encourage runners to educate themselves on the footwear design characteristics, because understanding what they do and how they distribute this force and this load, you can use these to your advantage. You know, if you have a tight Achilles and you want to try and offset that, well, you can choose shoes that are going to help you do that. So That's why I say it's absolutely, you know, not indulgent to be buying multiple pairs of running shoes or to be focusing or spending the time on actually learning about them or or talking to someone who who does and can help you. So, no, it's not. It's absolutely a valid thing to have many running shoes. I'm not sure where the limit ends. Like, you know, I guess it probably is a a top limit on that. I don't like to limit ourselves with numbers. How many running shoes do you have, Mal? I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I actually do recycle mine after I have finished running in them. So I don't have like a tally of them. I send them on to a better home. Um, but yeah, I mean, the world's your oyster. Have as many as you want. If you <laughs> want to keep sending that force to different parts of your body every day, well, you're going to reduce your chance of injury. So that's how I like to think about it. Um, 
But if someone doesn't have the luxury of having that many pairs of shoes or really isn't interested in investing, you know, in that that many pairs, then I think a pair of running shoes that is designed for training and to handle that amount of load. So something like a Pegasus, you know, something like an Invincible, they're designed to handle bulk mileage. They are going to be a lot more forgiving wearing them every day. You would absolutely not want to have something like a racing shoe and try and wear that every day. So just something that's really versatile is going to be the best option if we're just going to have one. Awesome. Such, yeah, such good advice. I feel like the pegs are pretty light anyway. Like I've done some decent workouts in them. So that could be a great option for someone wanting an an all-around shoe. Can you talk us through the technology of the speed shoes? For example, the Nike Vaporfly or Alphafly, and do they actually make us any faster? Yes, they absolutely do. These shoes are designed to be so efficient to really help runners run faster in those moments where they need to. So think like race day or or maybe some key training workouts leading into those races. But the, the way they actually do this is through a system. So there's a couple of elements here that come to play, but there's the foam, there's often some kind of metal plate, and then it's also about the actual shape or geometry of the shoe itself. And what that system does is really makes the runner more efficient. To understand how they work, I think it's worth just touching on every time a runner's foot hits the ground, they lose a certain amount of energy into the ground that doesn't get returned to them in their next stride. And what these shoes really do is hold on to as much of that energy as possible, minimising how much gets lost into the ground and then returns it into the runner's next stride. So they almost work like this really efficient spring, but scientifically they're not actually acting like a spring because they're not giving you anything back that you're not putting into them. So hopefully that makes sense. If you can't turn your legs over at the pace required to run at a certain pace, you're not going to be able to do that just by wearing these shoes. But what they do do is reduce how much energy is wasted or lost into the ground. And when you think about a long distance event, which is what these shoes are designed for, over the course of a marathon, being more efficient is going to help you ultimately run faster because long distance running is all about efficiency. So that's how they actually work. And the results really speak for themselves with these shoes. Since Super Shoes came out, you know, Nike really brought it to market back in 2017 with Elliot Kipchoge, but they've absolutely taken off and everyone has their own version of these shoes. And we see these records and these times falling. And in terms of efficiency, the actual um, results that runners can see from just wearing these is anywhere from a one to 8% increase. So it's very individual. It depends on the actual runners biomechanics and how they interact with the shoes. It's not like a one number for everyone. But they absolutely do make us faster by making us more efficient. So pretty incredible that this is where we are in the sport. And I think really exciting when it comes to being able to really help runners on their journey to chasing down these PBs by providing these product solutions. Yeah, they're pretty incredible. Um, I remember when the, I think it was the Nike 4% came out as the first kind of like speed racing shoe uh, so it's pretty cool to see kind of the evolution of those what those shoes look like now and how much quicker that runners are running and even just like in my own 
experience as a marathoner, like being able to put on a shoe like that and and train in them every so often, but race in them more particularly, like how incredible they make you feel. And I definitely feel like the way that I pull up after training sessions or even marathons with a Vaporfly or an Alpha Fly on is just so much quicker than back in the day when I was running in um, a Spider, which for those who don't know, is probably the flattest racing shoe you could possibly find. But yeah, it's pretty exciting to see kind of the innovation just continuing to be spat out by brands like Nike and seeing like what it is doing for for athletes' paces and um, times that they're completing marathons and it's pretty insane. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the most incredible things about these shoes is also the accessibility of them and how it allows, you know, just average recreational runners to wear the same shoes that their heroes are wearing. You know, you spoke then, Lids, about the spider and like how flat that is. And before these super shoes came out, recreational runners could absolutely not get away with running a marathon in those flat racing shoes that the elite runners run in because they just weren't you know, they didn't have that lifetime of conditioning behind it. Their legs and bodies weren't able to like handle that load and impact in the same way. And they weren't as trained. So they couldn't be as efficient in those flat shoes. Whereas now you can literally have someone who runs a five-hour marathon wearing the same shoe that Elia Kipchoge is wearing. And I think when you like connect people across the spectrum of sport like that, to me, that's almost more exciting than the fact that these shoes help you be more efficient. And then the way that you can pull up so much fresher and, and better from them and it alleviates that soreness, like to me, it just opens up a whole plethora of runners that can now really identify with like wearing the same products that their heroes can. And I like that personally about them more than the fact that they might help me run a couple of minutes faster. I love that, Molly. Always thinking about the everyday athlete. We love that about you. Well, so much information and you are a wealth of knowledge and I'm sure so many of our listeners would have taken so much away from the conversation today. So thank you so much. But before we go, we do have two quick fire questions for you that we do ask every guest. And the first one is if you could go back to your younger self, your 15-year-old self, what would you tell her? I would just tell her to back yourself and not worry about what others think. Love it. And then the last quick fire question is, what is your purpose on Mother Earth? That's a really heavy hitting quick fire question. But I think, you know, currently right now in this conversation, speaking about making female sport a better place and really elevating sport for women, like that's the first thing that comes to mind. Is that the only purpose I have on this earth? No, probably not. But it's definitely one that I feel really passionate and empowered by and one that's at the forefront of my mind right now. So that's that's my answer for us here. Love that, Mole. Thank you so much for being on this mission with us. We will be tagging Molly's Instagram into our show notes so you can go and check out her Instagram, see the incredible travels and races that she's been doing lately. And I'm sure, Mole, I'm going to speak on your behalf. You wouldn't mind if people slide into your DMs with any product questions. Um, so I'm sure some of the listeners will be coming straight to you. So definitely head to our show notes to see her there. We will also be in our show notes. If you want to come and get in touch with us, you can come to our Instagram at emi.co or head to our website, emi.co. So thank you so much for listening and thanks for joining us today, Mole. And listeners will be back in your ears next week. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.